This evening, I would invite you to turn it in your Bibles to Psalm 119, and there will be my focus this evening. Uh, Psalm 119 is not a short chapter, and I'm not going to preach the whole chapter. I'm preaching one small section from that. I'll preach another as we move through this section of the Psalms uh, that's called the fifth book of the Psalter that is often associated with the book of Deuteronomy. I've been preaching this summer a series on the king and the kingdom, what it means to have Christ as our king and we who are his citizens, how we are to live, and one of the ways, the primary way in which we are instructed how to live is his law. Much of God's word is devoted to that section, uh, what is our duty, the duty of man. We learn about God and we learn what God would require of us in his word And so I'm just taking these few verses, verses 33 through 40. I know that's a short section, but I will be taking other short sections to give us an idea of what it means to live lives that glorify God. So if you listen or you can follow along with me, I'll read Psalm 119, beginning in verse 33, and I'll read to verse 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things, and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread." For your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, as we come to you this evening, we would ask that this section of one man's longings would become our longings, that we would learn to love what you love. Lord, to hate that which is out of alignment with your word and your glorious character that we find in your word. Make us a people devoted to love and good deeds that we might not only, Lord, know what it means to be satisfied upon you, but to shine our light before men. And so, Lord, teach us this evening. Instruct our hearts in the way we pray in your name. Amen. Tonight I want to talk about what a faithful citizen of Christ's kingdom, what he thinks, feels, does in response to the law of God that has been revealed not only in nature, in creation upon and pressed upon his own heart, but also uh, in God's word. How do we live in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, we receive the law as good. We call it good. We do not seek to to move around it, to be uh, outside of it, to not be convicted by it. There's a lot of talk, even in modern evangelical churches today, where they want to de-emphasize the law in order that they might establish relationships with unbelievers first, which is a really bad bait-and-switch, frankly, instead of proclaiming the light and the beauty and the glory of God's law. I was speaking with a few folks this morning after worship, and We talked about what it means not only to be a faithful proclaimer of the word, but our lives are really the sermon. 
Our lives are the glorious illustration of what God can do in the life of an individual. How far he can lead them from a place of natural man and rebellion against his word at enmity with God and with other men to a place of peace, not only with God, but with his fellow neighbor. Christians are to be peacemakers. But this is not easy. And it requires a number of conversations, a number of of pleadings before the Lord and his word seeking that he would, through his word, not only instruct us as to the content of the law, but press down into our very hearts the pattern and imprint of the law, his own righteousness. And so I want to take this short text, just eight verses, in two headings this evening. The first, both of them are petitions or pleas. The first, work deep spiritual affections in me. I've changed that a little bit since I wrote them on the bulletin. Sometimes that happens. And the second, work a renewed holiness in me. Two petitions, work deep spiritual affections in me, that is a good love, and work a renewed holiness in me, that is true revival. Let's take that first point this evening. Work deep spiritual affections in me. Spiritual affections are good. It is good to long for the glory of God, but we must know how to do it. And the psalmist here in Psalm 119 is asking that the Lord shows him what is good. And what is good? It is the way of the Lord's statutes. It is an understanding of the law. It is walking in the paths of God. It is the content of God's self and what he has made known about himself. That's what's good. And so the psalmist is asking for what is good. He is asking for a good thing, and he is asking in a good way. He is asking that the Lord might reveal to him paths of righteousness. Those things that are, look at verse 36, the testimonies of God. What is a testimony? Speech. It is the spoken and written record of what God wants us to know. That is what we call good. And we must not call evil good and good evil. This is, in fact, the inversion that Isaiah 5 talks about. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And so as you are walking in the world and in this world and in this culture, you're going to find a lot of people who say that's good when it is in fact the direct inverse of what is good. And we need to know what is good. How do we know? We open the scriptures. We look at the law of God. We begin with the Ten Commandments. And we expand on from there as a summary of God's moral law. God has told us how to live, how to think, how to feel, how to act, and to call good what he calls good. Now our hearts, even in a regenerate state, long for things at times to not be the way that they actually are. Sometimes we want to get away with things, and so we justify our behavior. Children, the way you often do this when your parents confront you in your sin, I know that I talk to families a lot this morning. I'm going to do it a little bit tonight. If someone comes to you and says, you ought not do that, and you go, uh, 
Timmy does it. I hope there's no Timmys here. I don't think there are. <laughs> there aren't. <laughs> he does it. Well, so what? Your parent may say. It doesn't matter what he does. What is according to good? What is good? What is according to the law of God? And so oftentimes we endeavor to give ourselves an out by only, well, you know what they say? You don't have to outrun the shark. You just have to, well, outswim. No one's outrunning a shark, I guess. You just have to outswim the guy next to you. Oftentimes we look at morality in this way. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, they haven't mowed their grass in two weeks, so, you know, right? (laughs) Circumstantial righteousness. Pluralism is what we call that. We cannot call good what God calls evil. And we cannot call evil what God calls good. But men are predisposed to do this. And so here the psalmist is asking for a new way, a restored way, a way that God must reveal in his word. And not only that, but he's asking for the Lord to put the law right where it needs to be. He wants it in his heart. The psalmist isn't saying, Lord, would you please help me frame certain sections of scripture and decorate my house or, um, you know, write scripture, tattoo it on my body. This is where, this is not where, I mean, you can put those things there, of course, but that's not what the psalmist is asking for. Sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. He's asking for the Lord to put the law not merely on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of his heart. So when he says, teach me, verse 33, give me understanding, verse 34, verse 35, make me walk, verse 36, incline my heart. This is a disposition. He is asking that the Lord would bring to himself, and we ought to pray and petition these things as well, that God would show in a way that is attractive, that is beautiful, that is compelling and desirable, his law. Now, Calvin, in his little booklet, the Golden Booklet, which it used to be a copy up here that just lingered in this pulpit for years, <laughs> the Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life, Calvin says the way in which the Lord does that is by visibly destroying our idols in front of us. And he does this oftentimes through pain. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But we need to understand that in order for hearts that trend towards rebellion, even in our regeneracy, the Lord must teach us the way of those idols, that they're the way is death. He does this in his word, right? He shows us in his word this, but even more than that, he does reveal it in our own lives. Through discipline. And oftentimes he disciplines through means. Children, he uses your parents Adults, he uses peace officers. (laughs) He uses the state. He even uses the church, the elders of the church, to bring discipline if need be. The psalmist wants the Lord to show him not only what is good, but to make him love and long for what is good. God reveals himself when he shows us the law. It is a kind of biography for what Yahweh is like. And it in turn shows us what we are to be like. 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, 
Be holy, for I am holy. That comes from Leviticus 11, verse 44, where the Lord says to Israel, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. That means set yourselves apart. From whom? From those who are not called by God. From the world. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, how are we made holy now? How are we consecrated? Well, Paul gives us very clear evidences of consecration. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in Galatians chapter 5, what are those things? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. The law supports those things. Christ is, by his spirit, in the lives of those who are seeking it, a bounty of spiritual fruit. He wants to give you that. And you must ask for it. The scriptures also say you have not because you do not ask. And so, brothers and sisters, what are we to ask for? Well, there is no greater petition, no greater prayer request. Then, Lord, make me like yourself. Today, after worship, a young man in our congregation came up, five years old. He'll be six on July 30th. And he said, Pastor Fowler, I love Jesus with my whole heart. And I said, well, have you told your parents that? He said, no. I said, well, you should go tell your parents that. Go tell them. I said, that is such a sweet confession. Now, many adults will say, well, I just don't know if that's sincere. (laughs) That's sincere. Is it immature? He's five. (laughs) He's five. But the Lord can work with immaturity. We are to have sincere hearts, asking out of a heart that says, Lord, I just love you. Make me holy. Those are good bones. And so what are we to ask for? Well, what is the psalmist asking for? He is asking for that which makes one holy and whole. W-H-O-L-E. Complete. The law as Christ works the law in us by the Spirit, is growing us up in godliness, and we are becoming more and more like him. This is sanctification. And the degree to which we are progressing in sanctification, never reaching perfection in this life, I'm sorry to say it, (laughs) it's not going to happen. We become more whole persons. The world does not know what a human is for. Because the world constantly seeks to supplant God's design for us for whatever design they have. Right now we're living in a culture that doesn't even know what men or women are for or what a man or woman is. Or children for that matter. When you hear a five-year-old make a sincere, sweet profession, I love the Lord, you need to hear it as a five-year-old. The world now wants to say five-year-olds can determine their own sex. Or they say gender, but that's not a thing. Right? We live in this backwards, morally bankrupt place. Why? Because they have rejected the law of God, and in doing so, they have rejected any hope of being whole, human, as they have been designed. 
The psalmist is asking. We ought to ask. Look at the things. Teach me. I've read them already. Give me understanding. Make me walk. Incline my heart. Turn away my eyes. It's petition. After all of it is petition in this section, verses 25 through 40. And then again in 41 through, well, 44. But then there are sprinkled petitions throughout this. The psalmist sees something good. He loves it. And he says, Lord, make me like that which is good. Yourself. You. This is one of the reasons for which the law was given. Have you heard of the third uses of the law? This is not like the four spiritual laws. This is the three uses of the law of God. Calvin sort of came up with these distinctions, and I think they're very helpful. He numbered them this way. There is the first rule, which is a rule for the governments of men, social order, for families, for churches, for the state. The second use of the law is to drive us to the cross of Christ by revealing our misery and sin. When you become aware of the fact that you are a lawbreaker, you must... It, it drives you to the cross and you look at Christ and say, woe to me, I am a sinner, I am undone. Forgive me. Out of sight of our sorrowful sin, we repent. Who gives us that sight? The Holy Spirit. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And then there is the third use, which shows those who are regenerate how to lead a godly life. Psalm 119 is for the covenant people of God. This is the petition of one who loves God, which means what? You and I still, like the psalmist, have a lot of work to do. And our petition should always be, as one who sees the glory and the beauty of God, which only a Christian can do, we are to ask, Lord, help me get to that place. Help me in the journey. Grow me in grace. Conform me. Take off. <clears throat> there he goes. Now my voice has changed. <laughs> Take off those parts of me. Shave them. Remove the dross. Heat me up. Bring me through the fire. Whatever it takes. Of course, we bring that petition to the one who dwelt in the bush, that though burning was not consumed. Moses saw a picture of what Yahweh would do as he dwells among his people. He would bring a holy fire of his presence that would bring holiness, consecration, the fire and heat that removes the dross but not consuming in judgment. That is who God is for us as his people. And so ask. Ask. Ask that the Lord would work in you deep Spiritual affections. Second point. That you would ask the Lord to work a renewed holiness. That is what the psalmist is asking. He's asking for revival. Look at the very end there. Revive in me your righteousness. What we find here is not just petition, Lord, teach me your statutes. Give me understanding and then I shall keep your law. I will then observe it with my whole heart. Walk, make me walk. This is, this is interesting language, isn't it? Lord, I need a tutor. In fact, the scriptures speak of the law as such a teacher and a tutor. Of course, it is the law and the spirit ultimately that work in us powerfully to conform us after the pattern and likeness of our Redeemer. 
Verse 36, incline my heart so that I will not be covetous. What are we covetous of? Anything other than righteousness. Anything other than what God has given us. It is, an, it is a pleading for contentment. And so there is a section in which the psalmist speaks of teaching me about the glories of your law. And then there is a section about teaching me so that I will no longer be sinful. There's a bit of a turn in verse 36. Away from covetousness, away from worthless things, revive me. 37b. And then 39, we go back to the language of covenant renewal, repentance, turn away my reproach that is a kind of divine disapproval, which I dread. There is this language of the psalmist admitting before the Lord, there are portions of me that are out of alignment. I want this, I want to be here, but right now I'm here. How do I go there? Well, what do we do? We admit what is true of ourselves according to what God's word reveals about us. We turn the flashlight around. We look in the mirror. The Proverbs speak of a man who unrepentantly looks at himself in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he is like. The Proverbs speak of us returning to our sin like a dog returning to his own vomit. That's a terrible picture. Because if your parents ever made you eat soap, when you used a bad word, <laughs> we're going to have an aisle walking. <laughs> if we're ever doing that, Logan's the first one to come down, I guess. Well, can you imagine make your parents saying, all right, here you go. Not soap. Here's a big bowl of vomit. You go, whoa. Because it looks filthy. Why do our hearts look at sin when there is a, a bowl of vomit and go, that looks like Fruit Loops, Lucky Charms? Why? Because our taste, our longings, our affections have been distorted by sin. And so the psalmist says, change my heart, change my eyes, verse 36 and 37. Help me not to love that which I should not. And help me not to see those things that are worthless as worthy. Give me real sight. Help me to see things as they are. This is the language of repentance and renewal. The psalmist is asking for a knowledge, a love, a steadfast keeping of the law of God. And he's going to the Lord. Why? Because even as the Spirit turns our hearts and our eyes towards Christ... And we see him and we love him. He is also the one who is able to sort of dial in our vision in such a way that we see our sin for what it is. And it's two things. It is odious. It is wretched in its composition. It is disgusting for what it is. And it is horrific for what it does. It corrupts us. And I don't mean just eternally. Our sin is corrupting. It corrupts our affections. If we look at the things we ought not to look at too much, it transforms the way we look at everything else. That distorted image. Have you ever seen a Picasso? 
He was a great painter at one point in his life. Picasso was in every way, sexually speaking, a deviant. And every time he would engage in unholy relationships, his paintings went more and more from the real to the surreal. As he began to mar the image, have you seen these images? A a nose here and a face there and all of this distorted. It was his own moral depravity working itself out into a canvas. Our sin has an effect. It has an effect in this life. Your sin, you may say to yourself, well, this isn't bothering anybody else. This is something I'm doing. This is my thing. Leave me alone. No, it has a corporate effect. But it also brings about for yourself eternal judgment. It brings about reproach, verse 39, and judgment. And so the psalmist, knowing that the judgments of God are good. All right, the law is good. And God's judgments are good. That is, that God's judgments are righteous. In order to be reconciled with the judgments of God, you must be reconciled that his judgments are in accordance with his law. He is not fickle. He is not arbitrary in his commands or in the way he punishes violations of those commands. And examples of God's eternal judgment are seen everywhere in temporary judgment, right? We want evildoers to experience justice. Our own culture longs for that. Now, they don't always long for it as God does. What I mean is this. Every nation has blasphemy laws. Every nation. Now, it may not be blaspheming the name of God, right? It may be blaspheming what? Pride Month. If you blaspheme Pride Month in America, you're going to get fired. Why? Because sexual licentiousness is our God. That is the idol to whom we pay homage. And there are a number of things just like that. Just see how people respond, and that will tell you something about where their deepest affections go. Who do they look to for help in times of trouble? When people are dying and there's great uncertainty over these past two years, to whom did people flee for help? There's your God. And the church has a wonderful opportunity to say, this is the sanctuary. This is the altar. This is the place where we flee for help in times of trial. Because we know that the alternative is divine disapproval. That's what reproach is, disapproval. Now, the inverse. That for which we should labor above everything else is the well done of our Heavenly Father. Verse 38, or sorry, verse 39 is the antithesis of that. To arrive in glory only to hear the Father say, No. You rejected my law. You abandoned my commands. And because you did not see that you were a sinner, you rejected my Son. And because I am righteous and good in all that I do, I will say, Wrath for all eternity. 
The psalmist understands the weight, the stakes, as it were. And so he wishes to move towards the glory and holiness of God and away from the misery and corruption of sin. And it is a blessing in this life to know the reproach and temporary judgments of God now than to not get any of it and experience for eternity. Children, your parents' discipline is so that you may not hear at the end of your life You wasted your life. Better to hear it from your mother and father now and say, what you did displeases the Lord and it breaks the heart of your parents. Flee from that attitude, from that behavior, and run to Christ for help. And ultimately, all of this loving, this longing, is out of a love for the Lord. Behold, I long for your precepts. And because of this, he asks twice, revive your way in me. Revive in me your righteousness. We are not like God in this. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1, we read, There is but one living, true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions. Have you all read that before and gone, what in the world does that mean? Because, you know, you'll hear people write these modern Christian songs about the passion of God. And those words are not being used in the same way. Here, parts and passions speaks of the simplicity of God. Now, when you hear simplicity, don't think stupid. That's blasphemous. Think God is only God. He is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. You and I are not simple in that way. And as it relates to our passions... Paul says it's like there are these two men at tug of war. There is the old man and the new man. One, when he hears the law, says, I don't want to do that. I want to do what's contrary to that. That's the old man. But the new man that walks by the Spirit says, what are you doing? Just do what God says. I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do those things. And then he just says, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a struggle. And so in order for the new man to gain strength over the old, as it were, the psalmist provides for us a prescription. Ask God for help. Ask God for help. And God will, in his providence, by his spirit, assist. And in this, we ought to be confident. Now, it may not come as quickly as we want. God doesn't... Just automatically say, oh, that beautiful thing over there you want, bippity-boppity-boo. And all of a sudden we go, oh, it's it's ugly. At times there is a a slow transference, a slow transformation even of our our own sight of the way things really are. It is really a lifelong process. And it seems as soon as you get sort of a leg up on one sin, here comes another one. As Calvin would say, our hearts are idol factories, right? But we must pray, revive us, O Lord. And we must pray this because we know that God is committed. Now, I'm going to read a little section from one of my favorite books where the Lord, in allegorical form, does this for a young man named Eustace. Now, Eustace is a character in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace, nobody liked Eustace. He was a complainer. He was greedy. He was covetous. 
And he was so covetous that at one point as they were journeying in the land of Narnia, he and his friends, his family members, they were on a boat and they were there with some brave people. Prince Caspian was one of them. Reepicheep, the brave rat or mouse. He found a treasure and his heart coveted that treasure and he grew greedy and that treasure turned him into an ugly dragon. He was a boy transformed into something hideous. The problem was that when he was transformed one night while lying in this this gold, he had a, a gold armband and it did not stretch as he became larger and ever more grotesque until he was, by Aslan, transformed back into a boy. And Aslan came and approached Eustace now in the form of this hideous beast and he with his claws peeled every scale away from that young boy. And towards the end of the book, or at least in response to that occasion, Eustace and Edmund, who, was, who learned a lot between then and the first book, have a, has a conversation. This is their conversation. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff pull off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. He had tried it himself and failed. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I'd turn into a boy again. You think me simply phony. If I told you how I felt about my own arms, I know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? Well, I don't know exactly or remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. It wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Well, why not? Well, there are no, well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. I love it. <laughs> this is the promise, and this is the work that Christ does in us. He undragons us. He makes us boys again. He restores the humanity that he gave us in the first place by recreating in us something after the one who himself is firstborn. Dear saints, this is what we are after. We are after the restoration and revival of all things according to the law of God, not as a means of legalism, 
and a means of seeking to please and be conformed so that we might become human once again. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we ask this evening.